Hey, Eric here. Before we start this episode, Laura and I wanted to mention that we've recently launched a newsletter. If you're looking for some career inspiration in your inbox, head over to howigotherepodcast.com. In the newsletter, we share behind-the-scenes thoughts about our episodes and feature written stories on how others have figured out their own career journeys and share their advice. If you've enjoyed the podcast and are craving for more honest and inspiring career content, you should definitely sign up at howigotherepodcast.com. We've got a bunch of subscribers so far, and you're not going to want to miss out. Without further ado, here's the show. Thanks for listening. This is How I Got Here, a podcast where we interview professionals about how they navigated the twists and turns of their careers. We hope these conversations can help you figure out where you want to go and how you'll get there. We're your hosts. I'm Lara Mitra. And I'm Eric Eliason. In each episode, we'll first give you a quick intro about who we're speaking with, then we'll get into the interview, and lastly, we'll each share our biggest takeaways from the conversation. On this episode, we chat with Nicole Alvino, co-founder and chief strategy officer of Social Chorus. Nicole started off her career at one of the most infamous companies in the world, Enron, although she didn't know it at the time. In fact, she worked on the SWAT team for the CFO, Andrew Fastow, who ultimately was charged with fraud and sent to prison. You'll hear how this experience deeply impacted Nicole's career. In the aftermath of the bankruptcy, she swore off business entirely. But after some soul searching, she came around to another idea. We'll be back after the break with Nicole's full story. Hi, I'm Nicole Alvino, co-founder and chief strategy officer of Social Chorus. So we know that you started your career at Enron, and based on what you've told us, you had a pretty great experience. You were learning a lot about finance and business skills, but then, of course, you were also at Enron when it started to collapse. Can you take us through the beginnings of when you realized something was off? I was 23 years old, and I was given power of attorney to go to the Cayman Islands to buy a Turkish power plant <laughs> on behalf of, of Enron. So in, wow. to, from one structure to another, like I went with our banker and our attorney, me flying down and we stayed in that. There's a Hyatt where um, if you've seen that movie, The Firm, it's okay. the very oh, yeah. last scene. It's actually that hotel where they filmed it. How ominous. <laughs> so yeah, so it was very bizarre. And part part of me at 25 is, oh, wow, I, I'm important. I was kind of handpicked to go and do this. I actually had to sign the, the documents and we went to this law firm, had to set everything out. And it was on the, on the wall, there was a placard of all of the companies that were incorporated in this particular law firm. So call it a potential of a thousand companies that were incorporated that as I was looking down at them, like 80% were all Enron companies that were created to, to do these structures. And that was the hmm. first time that I scratched my head a bit and thought, this seems like a lot. And again, I had no idea what other companies do and if this was normal. And when I asked people about it, they all said, don't worry, every public company does these structures, transacts this way, you know, Enron just does it more than everyone. We push the envelope. This is how change happens. We're really aggressive. You know, isn't it great that you're a part of it? So 
it was, it was all of this um, kind of external affirmation about what we were doing and about the creativity, which was a positive. I mean, I even had investment bankers who we worked with say to me, you're so lucky you're working for this team. You guys are on the cutting edge of hmm. even what we're seeing. So it was very interesting just to have all of that, that positive external affirmation of what we were doing. And, and were you convinced after you had had this kind of suspicion and then you went back to your team, were you convinced by what they said or were you still unsure? Yeah, I didn't know. And it was also, I had a liberal arts degree. I hadn't done this work. These were people who have decades of experience in finance. And so I took it, I took their word. And then could you talk us through what happened, you know, shortly, I think shortly after that experience that you had in the Cayman Islands and, and when everything started falling down around you? It was right when I was applying to business school. And I remember there was a kind of a week in between when two applications were due. And that was when the first Wall Street Journal article came out. So there was there one application that I didn't really address it. And then the, the second application, I was actually defensive mm. of, of Enron and saying, you know, part of getting your MBA is really learning to, to weather the storms of change or just that any external environment. And, you know, I, I was very, still felt very proud and this ownership around what Enron was doing and how we were helping this greater good of change. Um, so it was actually quite interesting that then when everything came out and unraveled, that then I was worried that these people were reviewing my applications and thinking that I was some unethical person <laughs> who <laughs> had no moral compass. Yeah, everyone wanted to be in my ethics class. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, I can only imagine. Yes. And when did do you remember the moment when you started to realize that something was was wrong and something was totally off i think it was the the all of the little things together so it wasn't like there was one moment of oh my gosh this thing is so wrong and bad and i think mm -hmm. looking back to you know i i still don't think that people woke up in the morning saying i want to defraud shareholders today and right. i really want to do these bad things i think it which is which is very scary it's like a one small move of, okay, maybe this is slightly gray, but I can justify it. And our accountant signed off on it and so did our attorneys. So it must be okay. And then because you've made that step, then there's that second step that's, well, we already have precedent because we've done this. And I think now, and again, this is with hindsight looking back, there were all of these little decisions that each one of them might not have been this is the takedown or, or this is this absolutely horrible one, but it was all of them together. And I think they went from lighter gray into the darker gray. And I think when people were making the darker gray, black, bad decisions, it had come after having made so many little ones mm -hmm. that they almost lost sight of where the starting point was, if that makes sense. And when things did hit the fan, how did you feel? I'm, I'm sort of imagining myself, my first job out of college, like I revered the place I worked, you know, I was so proud, was so grateful that they had hired me. And then to go through something like this, I'm imagining such betrayal and confusion. Could you tell us about how you felt at the time? 
oh yes. I mean, these were people who I looked up to. They were my mentors. Two of the three people who wrote my letters of recommendation for business school were convicted and went to jail. And again, wow. the, these were people just like you. I, I completely, I looked up to them. There were times mm -hmm. I was working 20 hour days at some point. So it was also a lot of, a lot of time spent and such a formative part of work and um, my first experience. So I was, you know, sick to my stomach, horrified. And it was also, I was questioning myself. Was it me? How could I trust these people who turned out to, um, to have, have broken the law? So it was actually hard for me. I had, I had applied to business school. I found out I got in and then it was this moment of, do I even want to go back and get mm -hmm. my MBA? And maybe business isn't for me. And when I originally wanted to go into business, it was to drive change. And I, I do firmly believe that business has a very important role in society. And it was that part of business that, that I'm, that really inspires me and still does today. And this experience kind of made me question all of that and decide, you know, should I just do something completely different? So I had eight months of time off between school started to basically decide what I was going to do. And I took a backpack and went, went to the South Pacific, um, for combination of time off. I was planning on writing a book, which I didn't do. And just to, to figure out what was important to me and what I wanted to do in the next phase of my career. I can imagine myself doing something really similar, but I'm wondering after being so disillusioned with the business world, and having two of your B-School recommenders go to jail, how did you end up coming around to want to work in business again? Yeah, when I was out on for a week doing a liveaboard diving, and I was thinking the whole time about how they could run a more efficient operation. <laughs> <laughs> with a surf instructor and saying, gosh, they should really package and price these quite differently. Or over here, this tour operator could do a much better job of marketing. So I found myself when I was kind of always thinking through business models, even mm -hmm. with this time off in beautiful Fiji and Australia and New Zealand, that probably that that's where my passion really was. And I did make a decision that I would go back to business school and I would only start companies where I could control the culture and the ethics such that an Enron situation wouldn't happen again. And you did follow through on that mission while attending Stanford Business School because you founded a company, Derma Lounge, which was in the health and wellness space. I'm curious, after working in corporate finance at an energy company, what drew you to health and wellness? Yes, great question. And so for those of you who are wondering or worried about having a nonlinear career path, I think <laughs> I, I helped define what nonlinear <laughs> career path means. Um, for me, because of my Enron experience, and I, I was jaded against corporate America, I told myself I would not even apply or go to an interview at a big company. I also decided no more finance, no more energy. I want to focus on something that I like in my personal life. Mm. Not like that's the, the right answer by any stretch of the imagination, but my buckets were 
wine, travel, and wellness, bond wellness. So that's where I honed in my interest. And I did um, one of our entrepreneurial classes. Some friends and I did a, um, a wine importing deep dive and it was some people who are in the wine industry and went into the wine industry. So I kind of re- researched that, that space, um, worked on a couple of business models in the travel space and spent some time with other entrepreneurs there and then did the same in the spa and wellness space um, before I honed in on Derma Lounge. What was the transition like going from this big organization that I imagine was somewhat hierarchical to now being a first-time founder and CEO? So all very different things. So I no longer had a personal assistant, which I (laughs) I had at Enron. Um, I did not have a fancy office. I did not fly um, on any fancy planes anymore, which was just, which was just fine. Um, and I wasn't, I, I wanted a change. So I, I got that change. Um, I do remember calling. So one of, one of my mentors who I met in business school, who ended up being my co-founder at social chorus, when he was my mentor, I remember calling him and saying, you know, being an entrepreneur is so hard they don't teach you this in business school. <laughs> you <laughs> like, you're right. You don't like no one understands it unless you've actually done it. Mm. And it's, it's hard to convey. And often in business school and case studies, we bring in the wildly successful entrepreneurs who tell great stories and that's not necessarily the day in day out. So Maybe in that spirit, is there, do you remember any of your toughest days of Dermer Lounge where you're like, man, I don't know if this was the, the right decision or this is really tough? Oh, yes. In my, I was in my studio apartment in San Francisco. I remember multiple days I would be up before the sun would come up, watch the sunrise and thinking like having to start my days and do all of the things I needed to do from my, my studio apartment. and never, never turn off. So there were some days where I would think to myself, is this really worth it? Shouldn't I have just gone to work at Google? Um, <laughs> definitely would have, would have made a lot more money, but that's, you know, that's, that's not the point, at least, at least for me and my career, it's, it's as much of the journey as the destination. And right. I think if you take a, a growth mindset perspective or mindset, which I do and think about my career, as long as I'm learning about myself or thinking about either gaining skills or gaining experiences, then it's worthwhile. So what did you feel like you learned while founding Derma Lounge? I quickly learned about myself that I loved I loved building the team. I loved the branding. I loved building our story and talking about our vision. I loved spending time with our customers. And I didn't love the kind of operational day in, day out of the, the operations specifically of running a spa business. Mm. There are just certain, certain things that I wasn't, again, not not my best skill set and I did not like it. And I realized 
for me, and that it was a combination of the things. And I do think that in, in one's career, if you can find the intersection of what you're good at and what you're passionate about, I think that that's obviously the, the best place to be. And it is, it seems simple. I think it is harder to actually um, understand that. No better way than when you're forced to do all of the jobs <laughs> as a, a small business entrepreneur. You know, we know that eventually in 2008, you, you left Derma Lounge and you founded Social Chorus, where you are today as chief strategy officer. I was just curious around how you knew, you know, when it was time to, to leave Derma Lounge and, and what that was like for you. And in 2008, as we remember, it was also the, another financial crisis. And right. so that was the time when I was out talking to investors and trying to raise a much bigger round of funding to grow Derma Lounge much bigger. And my aspirations were for a much bigger lifestyle brand around skin health and something that would require pretty significant external funding. Then when crisis of 2008 hit, no one is funding a, um, a, a spa, spa or skin health business. And so that aspiration of going much bigger at the time frame that I wanted to do it just evaporated from external factors. And then I stepped back and said, I personally don't need to run our company of this size. Yet we had two physical locations. We had launched a product line, but it was very clear for the next couple of years that was going to be the business. And so I decided that for, for me, that was my time to just have someone who could run the operations and I would go on, on to the next chapter for me. What was it that, about you know having two stores and only launching one line that made it so that you didn't want to be a part of it. I think you had said earlier like you know you were really interested in building the team and making a vision and dealing with the branding. Is it because that wasn't going to be a big part of your day-to-day -day work? That's right. We weren't growing at the rate at which I would have been necessary. Hmm. And I think for me too, it's important. I had to look at myself and say, where am I in my career? What else do I still want to do and want to learn? And at that point, I also realized that kind of as my, my contribution to, to myself, I needed, I needed a new challenge personally and what I could offer the business. Again, back to what am I good at? What are my skills? That the business, the business as it was, didn't necessarily need me to to do that. And in two thousand eight, during a financial crisis, that can be a scary time to to leave a, a company, right, and and leave a paycheck. Were you nervous about that part of it at all, or or did you already have social chorus? Was was that our idea already developing? Did you know you were going to jump to that? Tell us about what that was like. So my co-founder Greg, he and I. I met him in business school. We had, he was my mentor for several years. We had bounced around different company ideas. Um, and honestly, with the, the different things that I was looking at doing at that point, doing something with him for me was, seemed, seemed to be just the most interesting and exciting and the opportunity for me personally to have the most impact. I think another thing I learned about me that was very important to my career and everything I, I do is that I do want to have impact. Mm. What ended up becoming Social Chorus was going to give me that the greatest opportunity for impact without having to take on 
the weight of the world on my shoulders. So I absolutely did not want to be CEO at that point. Hmm. So given, given my experience at Dermal Lounge and, and being a first time CEO and founder, it was really hard. I talk about it as the, the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I, I wanted to, as my next step, not be in that role. And even though you were pretty sure, you know, you didn't want to be in the CEO role anymore, was it a tough transition going from being, you know, the person who calls all the shots to now reporting to someone else who was in, in that position at Social Chorus? I was at the, at the time, that's so what I wanted. Um, <laughs> so, so it wasn't, um, yeah, so it was, it didn't seem to be a hard transition. It, mm-hmm. Again, it was, it was a welcome transition at, at the, that point. And it's interesting. We, it's like, so when we look at someone's LinkedIn or resume, it's very obvious to see where they switch companies, but it's much harder to see how career growth happens within a company. And like mm-hmm. you said, you've been at social course for over 10 years now. How did you think about saying like, Oh, I'm going to stay here and keep working on this. And, you know, I'm going to rechange my role versus saying I, I need to go elsewhere to, to get my new learnings. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think people back to you should always evaluate whether it's formally every year or every two years. And I think mm. for me, a combination of changing the, the role or the type of role to learn new skills. And we did make a couple turns and, and pivots along the way. So what yeah. we started as social course is not social course today. And so I think that because we had a, a couple versions of the business, it was still, that was for me kind of enough of that entrepreneurial excitement and driving change in addition to me functionally having some new skills to learn and new challenges to take on um, that, that, still made it exciting and a place where I still am excited to be and, and want to be today. Wow. I've actually heard, do you actually take, you know, every year, two years, actually evaluate? I had a, a partner at my last company say that he did that every so often. He would actually go and apply to other jobs and evaluate, see what else was out there so we could really make this decision. Do you take it to that extent or do you do it a little bit more casually? Yeah. And I, I mean, not probably that literally, but I yeah. do, I do keep a running. I still have paper when people used to use paper <laughs> of my mapping out kind of where I wanted to be in my career and even skills that I thought I still needed to fill in and experiences hmm. that I wanted to have. So I think it's important to go back and check with those, those bigger chunks yeah. That, that don't necessarily have to be the every year, every two years. And then for the, the every year, every two, I think it's just to take a step back and say, am I contributing to this organization in a way that I know I can, that I'm, I'm giving myself to my full potential or, and, or I'm, I'm learning and I'm growing. And I think when definitely if you answer no to both of those things, it's, mm-hmm. it's time to do something different. And again, I think that the the challenge and the rigor is holding yourself to that. And, yeah. you know, that might not necessarily be let's, let's apply to every job that's out there, but at least be introspective, look at where, where you want to go. And I think realize that there are different ways to get to that same end goal. And so I think that 
it's hard, especially when we're, we're earlier on in our career. We, we've made so few career decisions that we think that everyone is absolutely going to impact our future. And if we choose the wrong, the wrong one at this turn, we'll never get to where we want to go. And the way I view a journey and career path, whether it's you're driving across the country or you're doing an around the world adventure, you, you have a destination and there are always multiple ways to get there. And I think if you, if you have a growth mindset around what you learn along the journey and an appreciation for the journey itself, then the destination will become more meaningful when you get there. Is there anything you think about back in your career now that you have the perspective of some years and some wisdom that you're like, oh, I totally shouldn't have been freaking out about that. That was not a big deal. Oh yeah, all of the things that I freaked out about and now can't even remember. So. <laughs> I think something, I mean, along those lines, something that I struggle with is this idea of like external validation and, and craving that to some degree, checking the boxes as, as you just put it. And I wonder if having that experience early on at Enron and in checking the box of going to this illustrious and prestigious place, but then seeing how how that can turn out not very well and pretty terribly actually. Did that make you more brave, you think, to to go outside of the box and to think about entrepreneurship and and your own pursuits? So when Enron went bankrupt, it would have been the Fortune 7 company. So I had an experience of Fortune 7 company that went from that to bankrupt in a matter of months. Mm-hmm. And I lived through this experience of nothing is permanent. So I had this very visceral experience early on that even the the biggest, most powerful, most prestigious company could go away and nothing is really secure. So I, I do think that that was formative because I've always looked at, at decisions of what's my, what's the opportunity and what's the upside, not the risk of what's going to happen if it doesn't work out. And I think that's a little bit of DNA. It's a little bit of experience and it's a little bit of mindset. And I think that risk, risk profiles can obviously change throughout our lives and throughout our careers. You know, something that I could do when I'm single and only had myself to worry about and is very different now that I have three children. And so there are obviously um, different parts of our lives with different risk profiles. Early on in this conversation, you were telling us about how you're going into business school with a vision that you would create a company with, with a great culture coming off of your Enron experience. Do you think you've achieved that at, at Social Chorus? I hope so. We have people who, it's something that's always been very important to me and our our culture is something that allows us to punch ahead of our weight class or achieve more. We're still a small company. We're 110 employees and we're, we're the software platform for some of the biggest companies in the world. 10 of the Fortune 50 use us. So the fact that we can build software, deliver software, service this for these big companies as a pretty small team is because we have this really strong culture. Um, so we have three 
foundational elements of the culture. It's we lead, we succeed together and we act like owners. And that's been something that everyone knows. We have a company meeting every week. We do shout outs to other people around those. Um, but it's interesting. It's, it's not, you know, there's this great book that I read and I actually sent to all of the executives of our customers called what you do is who you are. Mm. It's Ben Horowitz's latest book. He, he wrote the hard things about hard things. Right. It's his latest book about culture, what you do is who you are. And so his, his point, and he uses all these interesting stories from the samurai, from Genghis Khan, from a, a Detroit prison, to basically say that, that culture is how people act when no one else is looking. Mm. Or so your, your culture is really the, the, the small decisions that all of your employees make every single day when you're not around, when they're not looking at it are, are um, you know, inspirational things on the wall. It's what they do. And that is who you are as a culture. Hmm. So that, that's been really interesting for me to think about that in the lens of, you know, we have new people, we're constantly hiring new people. How do they, how can they know how to make these decisions? And are we giving them Kind of, is your culture strong enough to enable new hires to make these decisions or trade-offs, you know, within a couple weeks of, of being hired? So I think that that's something that um, I, I'm aspiring to. And I don't know. I don't know if you, you ever achieve, um, you know, it's not a, a perfect culture and it, it does need to evolve, um, but it ultimately lives on in everyone and it is their actions, not, not necessarily what I'm saying. I just felt like Nicole's interview was just super helpful for me. Cause as you know, Lara, like I just had my, the company I'm working for after school delayed my, when I'm going to start. And so that's just such an, a frustrating thing to help, help happen. And I think her emphasis on this, this growth mindset, it was just one that was super helpful and, and really a good reminder because, you know, she, she went through a bunch of these things talking about how, you know, at Enron, you see this company that's hugely valuable and illustrious and it goes out of the way. And what you have to focus on is just learning and, and improving yourself. And you can do that under any scenario. So I thought that was just such a great reminder for, for me. Totally. And to that point, also the fact that careers are long, right? Now that we've done a few of these interviews, we hear that again and again. But I still wonder, like, how do we drill that into our brains now as we stress over the things that, you know, she's saying that she looks back and can't even remember um, because they were that insignificant in the moment. But, you know, you still stress about them. And I wonder if there's some, you know, inevitability to that. You just feel like whatever you're going through in the moment is really hard and is really stressful and warrants all this attention that you're giving it. But I feel like if I at least could unlock that mindset of, recognizing that careers are really long. This is a very small blimp in it. Don't stress about it and, and move forward like she can now. Um, that would be super powerful and, and definitely save me a lot of time. 
I know. I was thinking about that and I was wondering if it's our backgrounds, having worked in consulting firms where it's up and out, that it felt like whatever we had to do, it was like very high pressure and you always have to move up. And so what I learned from Nicole is like, you know, she moved from being the CEO to not wanting to be the CEO anymore. And, you know, I think as she described it, she hasn't, doesn't view her career as like kind of this upward path. It was like, it's like, uh, you know, going around the world or going on a journey, which is like, you can't, you can make a wrong turn, but you're still on the pathway there and you can turn around. Um, and so I think to that point, maybe that's the way of taking the pressure off of ourselves to think like, oh, we always have to do the exact right next thing because then we, if we don't do that, then we can't get the next thing after that. And it's like, no, the world is much bigger than that. And there's a lot of different options out there and it's not all this up or out type of mentality. You can find more episodes of How I Got Here wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like this episode, please consider sharing. It really helps. Do you know the perfect person for us to interview next? Or do you want to be on the podcast yourself? Check out our website at howigotherepodcast.com. We'll be back with more episodes soon.